GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. On Gibraltar today with me, Kellyanne Borge. January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Eloise Hadlow was diagnosed with it aged just 32 years old. She tells us about her journey. Diary of a Trade Unionist will be having a look at a new book by Charles Cicerello, whose experience spans more than 50 years. It's going to be a big year for Irish folk band Thrifty Malone. Martin and Rob discuss the UK West Coast Folk Festival. But first, there's been an increase in domestic violence cases reported to the police over the Christmas season. The newsroom's Christina Cortez brings us up to speed on the latest from the RGP. Yes, so uh, UK charities have been highlighting in a report in The Guardian, they highlighted that this is a difficult time of year. There's all sorts of holiday stresses and arguments. It's compounded by money worries with the cost of living situation. People drink more and they're at home together, which can be very difficult for people living in abusive situations. So uh, the major domestic abuse service in England, Refuge, highlighted that that demand for its helpline increased by over 60% during the pandemic and that levels still remain high since then. It also says the cost of living crisis can exacerbate um, economic abuse, such as withholding funds from your partner. It makes it harder for them to move out as well due to the cost. Women's Aid also anticipated a rise during the festive period, saying this shows how many women are forced to stay in a potentially life-threatening situation. And on The Rock, there were a number of reported cases of suspected domestic abuse during this period. Some of these have resulted in charges that are now going through the court system. But uh, we spoke to the RGP and they told us that Christmas is an emotional time but that domestic abuse is never acceptable and victims should not tolerate it at any point. The, they say it's important for the public to know the police are there for them uh, 24-7. The RGP has a domestic abuse team uh, of specially trained officers who can help with a number of things, so safety planning, access to counselling, practical help and support during that criminal justice process if they proceed with that. Mm-hmm. And the new Domestic Abuse Act uh, that was uh, came into force last year. So what are some of those new powers that are in place? Yeah, so that uh, came into force last year. It defined what domestic abuse is and consolidated a number of pieces of uh, legislation to do with this. And it created new powers to tackle offences. Um, among these is not just physical abuse, but one of the things that was highlighted was control of controlling or coercive behavior when your partner sort of controls who you can speak to who you can talk to on the phone that sort of how you spend your money how you spend your money that sort of thing uh, another area of focus which was highlighted recently by uh, Rachel Williams a domestic abuse survivor who spoke at uh, last year's literary festival among other things was non-fatal strangulation and suffocation another area that's been highlighted there with this with this act that came into force last year and uh, you know in terms of domestic abuse as well um, just a couple of numbers You know, if you're a victim of domestic abuse, you can contact the RGP. The non-emergency number is 200 72500 and 199 is for emergencies. And you can also make a report online at police.gi. Yep, so those numbers 200 72500 or 199 if you're a victim, but also if you know someone who might be. I want to raise some concerns. And uh, women in need as well. They've got a a, a phone line on 8018 and uh, an office number on 200-42581. It's a new year. Many will be focusing on starting afresh, perhaps picking up a new hobby or exercise, and importantly, looking after our well-being after a month of indulgence. This means looking after our bodies, and an important element of that is making sure we go to our regular medical checkups. My next guest is someone who can vouch for that. Eloise Hadlow was diagnosed with cervical cancer last year, at just 32 years old. She joins me now at the start of Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Good afternoon, Eloise. Thank Good you for afternoon. coming in. Thank you for having me. So, Eloise, looking back at the start of 2023, if you can rewind a year, 
did you ever think a year on that you'd be in this position never speaking to me today about this never never in a million years that I think I'd be here tell us a little bit about how your your journey first began so it started 2020. Um, I had my first positive smear, which was HPV positive and cytology positive. Um, year after I was pregnant with my daughter. So we had to extend, the, I was supposed to get checked after a year, but we had to push it forward a bit further. I think it was about six months. The cytology came back clear, but HPV positive. So again, I had to go after a year. I started coming up with symptoms. Now, the symptoms were irregular bleeding. I had a lot of pelvic pain. I was extremely tired. Um, I had pain when I was intimate with my husband, which was very unusual. But I had excuses for everything. Irregular bleeding. I just had a baby. I'd had the Mirena coil put in. Um, for pelvic pain, again, I just had a baby. So although I was aware that it was a bit off, I still just kept on going, basically. Um, then it came till about February, March time, I started losing weight. Now, I do not exercise. I literally am the laziest person you can come across. I take my car everywhere. There was um, no reason to be losing the weight. There was no reason. I wasn't eating healthy. I mean, I was eating more, we could say. And the weight just started dropping. Um, but again, another excuse, I was going back to work after a year and a bit of maternity. I was rushing around, dropping the kids off, picking them up. So again, there was another excuse. Then one night I was laying on the sofa and I was on TikTok, just going down the rabbit hole as we do. And I came across a TikTok of this woman who had um, ovarian cancer and she was laying out her symptoms. And I was hitting eight out of 10 of these symptoms. So I just looked at my husband. I was like, I have cancer. And I'm very dramatic. So the response was, here we go again, self-diagnosing. Like, what are you doing? Um, so he just said, look, go and get checked. If you're concerned, go and get checked. Eventually, I plucked up the courage about two months after, went to go and see Dr. Gonzalez. And my first words to her was, I have cancer. She just was like, what are you going on about? Like, wait a second. So the, everything started from there. Had a pap smear done, which is a cervical screening. And normally they wait for the results to come back. Now, because I bled during the smear and because they saw a lesion, which was a bit of a concern, I got sent straight over to colposcopy. When I got to colposcopy, I think it was about two and a half weeks after, my smear results were in, HPV positive, cytology negative. So I'm sat there and I'm going, yes, I don't need to do this colposcopy. Like, thank God. I knew what it was. I was nervous. And I obviously, you have fear. You don't want to be told anything negative. So... The gynecologist, Dr. Gerges, said to me, look, you're here, might as well get it over and done with, just to be on the safe side, let's just have a check. And then everything snowballed. So whilst I was there, biopsy had to be taken. I was petrified. I mean, my husband had to literally act as if he was my father. It was like, you're having this biopsy done, pack it in, do it. Eventually I gave in, had the biopsy done. I was called two and a half weeks later that I was CIN3. So CIN, what does that mean? So CIN is basically pre-cancer. You have CIN1, which is the start of the change of the cells. Then you have CIN2, which is when it's mutating more. And then CIN3 is literally just before it turns into cancer. So I was told, let's procedure. Hopefully just get the cells removed. And that is it. So again, I, that was on a Monday. On the Friday, I went in for the let's procedure. Um, it was quite hard for me because I was missing out on his sports day. So it was... You're referring to your son, Bradley, yes. who's come in today. Yeah. Hi, Bradley. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> Just six years old, but you're here because you're very proud of your mum. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Thank you for coming in today. Your first time on radio. 
Excited. (laughs) (laughs) So I had the let's procedure done and then I got called in a week and a half later. You need to come in tomorrow morning. I knew. I knew what was coming. Um, Everybody, like the family, were just saying you need to be positive. It's probably just a courtesy call just to say that everything's fine. I work in the healthcare. I know when you get called in the next day, it's not good news. So took the husband in with me and I got told at the age of 32, you have cervical cancer. You're going to the Royal Marsden. You're going to have a hysterectomy and that's it. Like we'll have to do more testing. We need to investigate more to see where the treatment plan goes. Do they tell you how common it is? Because you don't normally hear these stories at such a young age. No, you don't normally hear cervical no. cancer being diagnosed in, in your 30s. No, I mean, they, they, he didn't say much to me. I mean, it was very straight to the point. To be in a really weird, morbid way, I enjoyed my hospital appointments because everybody, whilst I was going through the testing, obviously you can imagine it's a very panicking situation. You don't want to hear that word that you have cancer. So... When I was there, because everybody around was trying to fluff everything up because it was so brutally honest, this is what there is. I found comfort in it in a way. I mean, I when I was told, I went into complete shock. I just went into laughing mode, using my dark humour, and that's how I coped with it. My husband couldn't believe it. He was just sat there with his mouth on the floor, basically, like, you've just been told you've got cancer, and here you are giggling away in this consultation. But it's how I... Your body and your mind find yeah. very um, interesting ways not to yes. cope with, with kind it of was, trauma. It was very weird. Like, I, I look back now and I'm like, what on earth? But it was how I could deal with it at the time. As soon as I left that consultation, I broke. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was given a death sentence is what it felt like. It's how long have you got? Have, are you going to fight this? Are you going to be able to get through it? I've got two young kids. I had one one and a half year old and Brad's who was six as well. So it was a lot to take in. My fear was having to go to UK. What am I going to do with the kids? Are my kids coming with me? Are they, Can I find somewhere for them to stay? I mean, the kids can't be without mum or dad for such a long period of time. I didn't know how long I was going to be there for. How many weeks were you in London Six. at the end? And that was in Galpe House? That you was stayed? in Galpe House, yeah. As a family, the four yeah, of you? The four of us were all there together. I mean, it got me going. I don't think I could have done it without having my kids there. As stressful as it was, I don't think I could have done it. Because it's wonderful having a facility like Galpa House available for us when we need it. But it doesn't take away from the fact that you're still sharing a room uh, between four of you, two youngsters, as you said, and going through life changing treatment. Tell us a little bit about um, what you had to go through once you were there. So once I was there, again, with me, it's go big or go home. Um, Went in on the Tuesday, surgery was scheduled for the Friday, and it was a radical hysterectomy. Now, normally you can have these surgeries done via keyhole surgery, but because my cancer was invasive cells, they had to slice from hip to hip so that nothing was left behind. They had to make sure that everything, literally everything was removed. So with that surgery, I had removed my cervix, the top half of of my vaginal wall, I had my fallopian tubes removed and also my womb. Now, they left my ovaries behind because of my age. If I would have been slightly older, they also would have been removed. But because of my age again, HRT, the whole hormone treatment, they said, we're going to try and keep it. Because my ovaries have been left behind, I'm on a 10-year remission instead of five, which is comforting, but never... So does that mean uh, regular checkups? Yeah. yeah. So, so I how often do you need to... Every six months, the consult, my surgeon from Royal Marsden comes over to Gibraltar. So I get to be seen by him literally every six months. And if I have any issues, any concerns, anything at all, I get put straight through into the gynecoclinic. Like, there's no waiting around. There's no faffing about. You're straight in there. 
Now, last summer, we dedicated a show to women's health uh, when you were you were actually in the UK at the time, but you did send a, a voice note for us to kind of share yeah. a little bit of your experience. And we had one of your doctors, uh, Dr. Gonzalez Olivia, who you mentioned earlier, She you described her at the time as an angel on earth. And I suppose um, it's just so important to have a, a strong support system when you're going through something as life-changing as this. I mean, my support system was incredible. When that went out on the radio last summer, I mean, I was being flooded by messages. I was sick at the time I had COVID. <laughs> I didn't know I had COVID. Which was just an extra complication <laughs> yeah, you needed to, at that just time. Just to add it on. <laughs> um, so obviously my surgery got postponed for a week because of that. If not, I would have literally just come out of surgery. Um, my support system has been crazy. I mean, I work in the primary care centre. I don't deal with patients. I don't deal with the public. I deal with finance, but... It was um, a very big help that I had the nurses there. I had Dr. Gonzalez there. So, I mean, I had Claire Gill, which is one of the smear takers. She was my rock throughout the whole time. I had Dr. Gonzalez as well. I mean, my managers were incredible. The support was just unreal. Well, you reduced her to tears in a way during yes. that moment. It was very, in fact, you reduced all of us to tears um, in the studio that day. It was very emotional yeah. to hear from you when we were speaking about these issues that affect women in Gibraltar. And, and um, quite shockingly, how many women skip their their smear tests because they perhaps uh, find it a bit daunting or a bit scary or intimidating to yeah. go for them. But you are a prime example of, even at a young age, how you need to take them so seriously. Yeah. So that's something you feel really strongly about really now. Strongly. No, really pushing I mean, for women to keep their I tell everybody to have their smears done. Um, I have friends who have had their first smear done. I mean, they're 32, 33, and they're just having their first smear done. Um, I've been pushing everyone on my Instagram. I'm constantly raising awareness. Look at what the signs are. These You need to look out for these things. If you get any changes that you're worried about, go and get checked. My smears were negative. I was HPV positive, but negative cytology. But I knew something was wrong. And I feel internally blessed that Dr. Gonzalez did not wait around. I mean, she pushed and it was, you're going straight in. She knew something was up. She listened to me. I mean, we have to be thankful for our healthcare. A lot of people are constantly moaning about the wait times or like they just moan. But we are blessed with the nurses, the doctors, the consultants. Like we have Galpe House in England. What other country can say they they can go to the Royal Marsden, which is a top cancer hospital in Europe, to get treated and you don't pay a penny? I mean, we we are truly blessed here. I mean, I give my gratitude. I mean, as I said last time, they saved my life. And that goes from Olivia Gonzalez to Dr. Gerges to his nursing team and all the way up to the Royal Marsden. I mean, when I was in the Royal Marsden, I ended up getting pneumonia and I had a very, very hard fight with the pneumonia on top of COVID, on top of the major surgery I had. They saved my life. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's crazy to think that at the age of 32, I was battling for my life. But this is why I urge so many people to get their checks done. Even I mean, any checks, even a lump in your breast, anything, go and get checked. Well, that was another topic we covered during that programme. And I'm very pleased to say that following uh, that show that aired, we received reports from both Dr. Gonzalez and also from the Breast Cancer Support Group that many women had actually called up in the days following to make sure that they were booked in and to say, look, I've missed mine. Can I get another appointment? And so that was really um, um, pleasing to hear because even if it just means that one person's life might have been saved, I mean, that's worth all the airtime that we can give. I mean, I've already had one woman in particular who's gone through the diagnosis shortly after me and I was her support through it all I mean you can't really seek support from somebody who doesn't know like what do they say to you 
you've got to be very blunt. You've got to be very honest. And I literally held her hands throughout the whole procedure that she went through. And it gives you a kind of purpose in life sort of thing. Like I've been through it. I'm now going to be there for everybody else that needs me to be there for You can them. take something positive from yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. As thank you said, you, you still have those six monthly checks. Yeah. Um, so I suppose 2024 is looking far brighter for you, but you still have that yes, I still uh, have to wait for. Yeah. yeah. A Diary of a Trade Unionist will be having a little bit of a closer look into that new book now by Charles Cicerello, whose experience spans more than 50 years. Our reporter Kevin Reese spoke to the man himself and joins me now. Good afternoon, Kevin. Good afternoon, Kelly. Buen principio. <laughs> so, Buen principio. Uh, Charlie Cicerello, he's devoted his life to trade unionism, hasn't he? Yes, it's one of those great stories. No, I think um, a few of us of a certain age, Charles Cicerello is one of those uh, characters who populated the news whilst we were growing up, no? People like him, Joe Bossano, um, Bernard, the late Bernard Linares as well, people who've been involved in the trade union movement um, during the heyday of the, of the unions, no? Um, because Charlie, um, in his 50 years and in that book itself, he recalls a different Gibraltar. Younger people might not recall, a few of us of a certain age might recall elements of it. Uh, Gibraltar, when those of us who were born here um, were sometimes classed as second-class citizens in our own homeland, as he puts it, no? Um, there were many restricted areas in Gibraltar, not just those that were uh, for authorised MOD personnel only, but civilian areas as well where Gibraltarians didn't have access to. And that is really where his, the story originates. No? And um, so much has been achieved and secured by the unions in securing the rights of the Gibraltarians over the last 50, 60 years. Um, we'll hear from Charlie and we'll take it from there. I've been 50, 50 years of my life dedicated to the trade union movement. Not only when, when I lived in Jeep, I also lived in UK for six years and I also was involved there. There are many things, I mean, it's very difficult to point point one thing. I mean, we had a lot of good agreements, like the authority agreement, where people had, let's say, the nurses had a 27% increase in, in, their, in their wages and, and better conditions, you know. There are, there are many things that we did at that time, you know, I was there for 20, nearly 20 years. So, in, in that sense, we achieved many things. And also, I would like to remind that in my book, I pay tribute to all the substitutes that work in the union, not only the ones once now, also the ones who are no longer with us. And we have to give credit to those people. Former trade unionist uh, Charlie Cicerello speaking to Kevin Ruiz about his book, Diary of a Trade Unionist, uh, just uh, reflecting on some of those changes that in turn improved people's lives. Yes, and um, he chronicles the journey of the unions from the 50s, 60s, 70s particularly, you know, um, but it's also a chronicle of the evolution of social life in Gibraltar and a betterment of our conditions. Um, I mean, he does bring up the general strike of 1972. Older listeners will be recalling all this. And again, those of us of a certain age, um, the union or the manpower, as it was uh, referred to colloquially, el manpower, no? Um, it was part of a daily vocabulary, I think. I think... Um, as a kid growing that up, that might have been lost. I think no, in newer, younger in generations. Younger generations, now. which we'll we'll get to, and Charlie addresses in his book as well, and in our interview um, with him for for television tonight. Um, 
it was part of our vocabulary. I, I mean, as a kid, I recall, I think every other fortnight we, or every fortnight we, we, we were all downtown um, in a demonstration, um, arguing over the rights for this or, or wanting better conditions, power cuts. Um, I, I mean, many of us grew up in that era. And those were the pressure points that the unions applied in order to achieve and secure what we're, we're blessed to have today. No, all those working rights and, and, and so much more. He also uh, talks about the difference now between the support uh, given to the private sector and the public sector. Yes, he highlights importantly, I mean, this goes back to the origin of the, of the trade unionism in Gibraltar when uh, the economy revolved entirely, almost entirely, um, around the MOD and its activities. Most people were employed by the Ministry of Defence. Um, they secured the rights for Gibraltarians working there. Um, but also, reflecting, Charlie does admit um, to the fact that perhaps so much has been secured, but mostly for public sector workers. He thinks unions have perhaps um, not neglected but not paid as much attention to private sector workers whose conditions are nowhere near those of the public sector. The, the problem, the problem now, nowadays is that there is a big separation between the public and the public sector. Whilst in the, in the public sector people enjoy good conditions of employment which the union fought for. But we, we made a, 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 an error. They say the union say, oh, no, not me, from the start. We, we never did the same for the private sector. We abandoned the private sector. And as such, we are, we are in a situation where an employee in the private sector only has two weeks sick leave, whilst in the public sector they have six months. Other things like uh, the holidays, the holidays, uh, the question of the pension, none, very few have pension, whilst in the, in the public sector they all have pension. There is a tremendous gap. Nowadays, most of the people are on minimum wage. You know what I mean? And that is difficult, minimum wage and bad conditions. And then they have introduced the zero-hour contract, which is also, uh, to me, very negative in that sense. So uh, the public sector is going up, but the, the, the private has remained still or going down, my opinion. Charles Cicerello speaking about the differences between support received by both the private and public sector. Something else you mentioned, Kevin, was that disconnect with the youth and perhaps how attitudes have changed and uh, there isn't so much of that uh, connectedness, no, with the yeah. unions as they used to be. I mean, I did ask Charlie, um, um, you know, what he thought the problems were. He said if the unions were still relevant today, um, he said they definitely were. And he mentioned that uh, disparity between the public and the private sector. Um, the private sector needs to secure so many rights, um, he believes, at this stage. Um, but he also believes the problem is the disengagement with the newer generations. Like I said, I grew up in that generation where the unions of manpower was part of the daily vocabulary. You were very aware of their workings, of what they were trying to achieve and secure. Perhaps yourself, you were born in a different generation. Perhaps it wasn't part of the daily vocabulary, was it? I think more recently, you because of the Morrisons, of course, strike which lasted so many months. Even, to the light, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, of course, and the bus strike as well, which yeah. affected so many people. So perhaps more recently, it has kind of been brought into our daily vocabulary. But um, coincidentally, we'll be speaking to Unites Christian Duo on the show tomorrow. So I'm sure that's something that he'll be interested That'll in addressing as well. Yeah. I mean, Charlie believes um, he, he he actually calls on our younger generations and those in the private sector to unionise and um, to continue working for those rights, which might seem unattainable, 
but it does bring back uh, to the yesteryear Gibraltar when it did when so many rights seemed um, so impossible to secure, but yet they were secured. Well, still coming up, this band, Thrifty Malone, the four-piece Irish folk band. They've got a busy 2024 ahead, including a folk festival in the UK in just a couple of weeks' time. Thrifty Malone, and I'm now joined by Martin and Rob, who, of course, form part of the band. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon now, Kelly. Martin, you said during that song that we'd need a whole show to go over the lyrics of, of that song <laughs> and what it means. Now you have me curious. Do you think you can try and sum that up in like 15 uh, seconds? Go on, Robin. He yeah, wrote it. I'll do my best. Well, I met uh, a friend of mine who's in the uh, National Guard in America uh, was telling me about a, a colleague of his who, uh, who got in some trouble, um, a veteran. Um, in a fight in Mexico and uh, ended up mixing with the wrong crowd. And uh, short, cut, long story short, he ended up driving, having to drive contraband over the Mexican border, um, all the while trying to get out of it and um, uh, and go and retire and live with his his partner in Mexico. Um, so, yeah, it's and every time he gets closer, everything's always six hours down the road. Well, I'm impressed that you managed to squeeze that into a four-minute song because it sounds like some kind of um, plot to a film. <laughs> really interesting. Uh, well, New Year celebrations over the last uh, couple of days have seen a who's who of local talent take to stages across Gibraltar to perform. And one of those bands was Thrifty Malone. Uh, how was your gig at O'Reilly's over New Year's? Yeah, it was very good, uh, very well tended. The, um, all tables were booked out. Um, it was an extremely long night for us. Um, we started at 10 o'clock and finished at 2. We only took a couple of little uh, comfort breaks um the the organization at o'reilly's was amazing we had um a free irish stew and a roll which was very delicious um and then obviously at midnight we had the uh, the champagne and the the 12 grapes um, did you manage did well. you manage to to do the 12 grapes and the 12 chimes I have to confess that I didn't personally. I did, did you manage that, Rob? I did, yes. yes well done. Yes. Well, I did too. Oh, that's good. I did have the Prosecco, but um, um, yeah, I, I'm not a particularly good grape fan myself. <laughs> well, it was a good start to the year to what's shaping up to be a really busy 2024, starting in just uh, less than a couple of weeks away. Yeah. Now, on the 12th of January, you're going to be travelling over to the UK for this uh, folk festival. So tell us, how did this uh, come to be? Well, um, like most bands in our position, we, we tend to try and apply to festivals whenever we can, if we see something that we fancy. Um, this festival came up. Uh, at, the, at the time we applied, we didn't really know what the conditions were, um, as in what we needed to do, how long it was for, but we just thought we'd apply, sent them a video, a performance video, live performance video. They came back fairly quickly and said, yeah, brilliant, we, we'd, we'd love to have you perform. Um, <clears throat> so we're performing on the introducing stage. Uh, it's where um, Gabriel Moreno also performed uh, a few years prior to this at the same festival when it was held down in Minehead. Um, but at the time, they then came back and said, OK, well, you've got 45 minutes to play uh, original, just original material. We had probably about four or five original songs at that point. But as a band, we decided... Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, 
I was very, very open with the band when it came through and said, look, this is what we've been asked to do. I think this was around June or July. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, are, we, are we up for it? You know, it's certainly doable. Um, we had some material in the pipeline. So the guys, you know, Trevor, Alan, Martin, they all said, yes, let's let's do it. Maybe you could do a part two to six hours down the road to carry on with that, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. elaborate story a bit longer. That's a good idea, that, yeah. So from that then, we basically went to the studio, a studio um, rehearsal room, and um, and wrote a few more songs. So we ended up with about 12 or 13 original, new original songs, which we whittled down to nine to go for the festival. And it includes songs written by everybody in the band. You know, there's a song in there, Martin's written, there's one in there, Trevor and Alan, written part with Martin. So every song that we've done, that, we've, uh, that we're going to play, has involved every member of the band in its creation. Lovely. And of course, here in Gibraltar, you guys are very well known now. You gig regularly, but how does it feel taking all that original music to a brand new audience in the UK? Well, we're definitely looking forward to it. I mean, uh, we've been together now as a four-piece for uh, a few years now, was it? Three, four, four years now? Yeah, yeah longer, six, six or seven. Um, yeah. So, uh, But to go over and actually do a, a trip together with, with just the boys, and, and I will say a very quick thank you to all our partners because uh, we are just going as the boys. So it's, uh, it's, we're going away, and it's very good that they've allowed us to, uh, to go away. But, but the reality is we're really looking forward to it and can't wait. We've put a lot of... Um, uh, work and effort into writing new material quite quickly um, and um, yeah we'll just yeah see let's go and have some fun <laughs> when will we be able to hear this new material here in Gibraltar well actually what, what we're going to do is because because of the way the planes work and flights work as everyone knows we're actually going to stay a bit longer in um, the UK so we're going to be in Blackpool I'm going to go to a recording studio actually there uh, and we're going to record some of the, the latest brand new stuff including stuff that hasn't actually been played live yet so um, as soon as we get back and mix that up it'll be out as soon as we can get it out exciting stuff and, and these songs as well although we, although they've come together in the last six six months that they're not all completely brand new a lot of the stuff that we've written has been out there with individuals you've been performing already exactly. well not one, one or two performing but 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 the rest have been there on paper individuals we've come in and said okay what do you think of this song what do you think of that song so every, every song that we've brought and we agree on now has all been um, it's interesting that you're all kind of writing but your sound is uh, merges no it sound, you sound like thrifty malone you don't sound like individual writers that's nice to hear yeah yeah well, that's that's what we try and achieve you know wouldn't wouldn't say we're, we're specifically a folk band we played a mix but it's a folk festival so that's where we're leaning to our uh, our irish folk side um, and it's a festival is it outdoors because i'm just thinking the uk in january how is that working <laughs> well it's uh, yeah it's a very good question <laughs> it's a very good question. blackpool in january is going to be very very cold but it's actually in a very iconic venue called the winter gardens in blackpool where lots of um lots of bands play and the winter gardens has a has a few um few big stages and um and rooms in there so we're on i think it's called the albion stage um which is one of the biggest stages out the back um, and we're on about three. Well, we're on at three forty-five on Friday the twelfth. Well, really exciting stuff. We're looking forward to hearing more from Thrift Malone in twenty twenty-four. Thank you so much for coming in. And yeah, you'll have to keep us posted when you have that new material recorded. We'll do. We're yeah. going to do a, a vlog as well. So watch out and keep an eye on Facebook for Thrifty Malone. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from one to two getting behind the headlines and you can catch up here whenever you like until next time have a good one gbc podcasts local voices on demand